Well, I, I am very excited to be able to preach this chapter to you today after, after having studied it throughout this week, um, because I think, and I will argue, um, that, that God is communicating some very, <laughs> very interesting things in this chapter. This chapter, upon first glance, appears to be kind of a hodgepodge of all sorts of various laws, moral and ceremonial, big, small, um, we could say first table of the law, second table of the law, all kinds of things, and sometimes very close together that don't seem necessarily to be connected with one another. And I think the temptation then is to be lazy of heart, lazy of mind, and to conclude, well, just a bunch of laws. We all like to think of it as, it's like a junk drawer. Right? We all have a junk drawer at home. It's, you know what the junk drawer is? It's where everything goes that doesn't have a place to go. Right? Well, that's what this is. God, God really didn't have a place for these laws to go, and just this hodgepodge, he just kind of threw them right here, um, and I think it would be lazy of heart to conclude that. Gordon Wenham says, <clears throat> this chapter covers such a variety of topics that the modern reader finds difficulty in seeing any rhyme or reason in its organization. And yet, after studying this chapter, I was reminded of Psalm 119, verse 18, which we just sang, where it says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Wondrous things out of your law. I marvel, brothers and sisters, I I tell you that every week as I prepare my sermons, um, God just humbles me week in and week out with the low view with which I often approach His Word, especially at the beginning of the week when I'm just, I'm just looking at a passage. It's simple, it's straightforward, or it's like, well, okay, there's nothing really mind-blowing going on here. This is just kind of like Bible stuff, right? And then after pressing into it, praying and meditating, it's like, what a fool I was. This is not a junk drawer. This is a a drawer with gems. This has gold in it. This is is like I should be stoked to preach from this passage, right? That that happens to me every week, I feel like, and this week was no exception. And so while while there is a a bit of hodgepodginess, I think it's intentional, as we'll see. I think God's actually doing some interesting things here. As far as structure... This chapter is not without structure, though at first glance it appears to have no rhyme or reason. In fact, it's full of all kinds of structures and little rhetorical devices, too many, in fact, to actually cover today. But as far as the overall chapter, it divides neatly into 16 paragraphs. Now, I'm using the term paragraph there very loosely. By a paragraph, that could mean one verse with just like one or two commandments in it really short. Or it could mean, actually, what would really constitute a paragraph, four or five lines or something like that. They all end, however, with the phrase, I am the Lord your God. In Hebrew, three words, Ani Adonai Elohechem. Ani Adonai Elohechem. Or sometimes just, I am the Lord. Ani Adonai. In fact, if you're looking, perhaps some of you are trying to count the 16 right now, you won't find them necessarily with an, a modern English version. 
If you were to try to count them, you might say, Pastor, I only count 15. That's because the first one is in verse 2, where it says at the end, For I, the Lord your God, am holy. More literally, in the Hebrew, for holy, I, the Lord your God. For holy, ani, Adonai, Elohechem. And with that one, it adds up to a total of 16. If that's the overall structure of the chapter, the overall theme, I would say, is a filling out of the breadth, the height, the depth, the width, the extensiveness, and the intensiveness of what it means to be holy as God is holy. That is, after all, the very first paragraph of this passage. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. By setting this statement at the beginning of the chapter, and by the repetition of the phrase throughout, I am the Lord your God, the effect is that that whole first statement, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, is in effect echoed throughout the whole passage. God is essentially saying, be holy as I am holy. You want to know what that looks like? Every one of you shall revere his mother and father. I am the Lord your God. Be holy as I am holy. You want to know what holiness looks like? You shall not hate your brother in your heart. That's what true holiness looks like. In this sense, then, God is fleshing out his holiness and what it means to actually keep the law. It's interesting also as many scholars, old and new, have noticed that the Ten Commandments are another central part of the main theme of holiness. Not only are most of them mentioned explicitly, but all of them are implied in one way or another. And indeed, the great summary of the Ten Commandments, at least as far as duty to our neighbor is concerned, the great summary, which James calls the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is found in the very, chap the very center of this chapter. If we were to divide the 16 paragraphs into two, or simply just divide the total of verses, the royal law to love your neighbor as yourself is the very center and heart of the chapter. I think that's intentional. In fact, as one commentator points out, chapters 18 and 20 within the holiness code. Remember, I told you this last section is called the holiness code. 18 through 20 make up their own subsection within the holiness code. He argues that chapters 18 and 20 mirror one another, because in both you deal with prohibitions against sexual sins and child sacrifice to Molech. We'll see next week that those same, it's, it's, it's very much not a repetition, but it's a mirror of chapter 18. This has the effect that they form bookends around chapter 19. He says, chapters 18 and 20 are written in parallel so as to frame chapter 19, since both deal with prohibitions against various, various sexual offenses and idolatry. By contrast, chapter 19 offers positive rules and is unified by the Ten Commandments, with all the Ten Commandments being either alluded to or quoted. This central chapter may be summarized by its own center, the admonition to love your neighbor as yourself in verse 18. And so, what I think God is doing in this chapter is that far from a hodgepodge of just a bunch of sprinkling of commandments, 
I think he's actually demonstrating the staggering demands of what the law actually demands from us to show the great height of what true holiness is. I think when we truly have a sight, I think if we truly have a sight of the law, the law, not, not our own truncated version of the law, our heart is constantly trying to make a doable law, right? Even as Christian, this happens. To see the law as it truly is undoes you. I'm reminded of a scene from the movie The Count of Monte Cristo. I may have shared this with you in the past. But I like this scene where the main character, Edmond Dantes, he's in the very worst of prisons. It's the darkest of darkest. Even later on when he says the name, and I haven't read the book, I only know the movie, okay? Even later on when he says the name of it, people hear it and they're like, you were in that prison, it was so dark. There's a scene where he meets a priest who is another prisoner who's been there longer. And Edmund says to him, kind of as a way of showing his credentials of suffering, how much time he has done in solitary confinement. He's only taken out once a year to be beaten, and then the rest he's by himself. He says, there are 72,519 stones in the walls of my cell. I have counted them many times. And the priest says, but have you named them? Edmond just starts weeping. <laughs> the, the, the madness of a mind, how long you would have to be in a cell to be like, well, that's Bob, that's Jim, like, that's, that's despair. And so he starts crying. But brothers and sisters, that's what a clear view of the law does. You go, there are 72,519 commandments of the law of God that I have kept. And the true law of God comes along and goes, ah, but have you kept them from the heart? Have you kept both big and small? Have you loved both your neighbor and have you loved them as yourself? And it just undoes any view, any way in which you and I think we're going to rest in our own righteousness. The law just comes along and goes, "Ah, no, you can't sit there. I'm sorry. Failed in that. Okay, I'll just rest in this part of my righteousness. Yeah, that's going to be a no too. You can't actually, in fact, you just have to stand because you have no righteousness of your own. That's what the law does to our view of our own law-keeping. I would say, brothers and sisters, the purpose of this chapter and part of my duty today, I think I will, I will have preached this chapter well if, in fact, you find yourselves feeling somewhat exasperated by the demands of the law. I feel if we come away from this and there's like, yeah, that was a good chapter on the law, I don't know if I truly preached it because I don't think that's the effect God intended it to have. The intent of this chapter is on the one hand to drive us to Christ, to show just how far, just how complete the law's demands are, how staggering they are. If you come away from this chapter going, that was a good chapter on some good stuff, you're not seeing the law as you ought. The law should make you, it should undo you should make you flee to Christ, make you rely on the Holy Spirit. I love what the Heidelberg Catechism says about the law in this regard. Question 115, why will God have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached since no man in this life can keep them? Okay, pastor, we're not perfect. 
So why are you going to call us to perfection? Why are you going to show the law in such, such a blinding light, right? Answer, first, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. There are children here today who do not yet see their sins. And they think they're going to get to heaven by their good deeds. This chapter comes along. <laughs> it, it wrecks any hope you have, children, in getting to heaven by your good deeds. But Christian, it comes along. It also undoes the Christian in a sense. If they've been trusting in their own righteousness, it makes them go most earnestly back to Christ. Oh, to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ after beholding my sin in the law. It goes on to say, likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in a life to come. When you are undone by the law, it makes you not only come to Christ for righteousness, but then to the Spirit for the enabling, apart from which you can't keep the smallest of commandments. You can keep none of it, not the smallest, apart from the aid of the Spirit. That's the proper effect of this chapter. Well, what I'd like us to do then, brothers and sisters, is to walk through the passage, and on the one hand, note simply the content and the obligations of each commandment, while on the other hand, noting other interesting ways that the Lord is fleshing out the law. I said last week, sometimes in Scripture, the medium is the message. Remember that? The medium is the message. We see that also in this chapter. Certain laws are mixed together. They're placed side by side when God could have done it any other way, and yet all of that is calculated for effect. It's, there's, there's a lot of medium in the message, kind, medium through the message kind of stuff all throughout this chapter, and we want to note that, okay? Beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. As I said, that's the central theme beginning. Verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Right away, right out the gate, I think there's a lot of things happening in verse 3 a lot of medium is the message kind of things, okay? First, note that both of these commandments are directly taken from the 10th commandments. They are the fifth commandment to honor father and mother and the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath. Next, note that each of these commandments is taken from a different table of the law, as we call it. To keep the Sabbath belongs to the first table of the law, which covers our duty to God, and to honor father and mother comes from the second table, which covers our duty to our neighbor. Lastly, note that while God could have taken any commandments from either table of the law, yet with these two, we might say that the two tables of the law touch, as it were. They are the closest commandment of either table to the other table. The fourth commandment is the last commandment of the first table, well, the fifth commandment is the first commandment of the second table. The intention which, of which I believe of putting both of these into one paragraph 
is to show that the tables of the law, though distinct, are nevertheless inseparable from one another. Do you want to know, Christian, how you're doing in terms of your duty to God? How are you doing in your duty to the first table of the law, loving God? How do you fulfill the second table of the law, loving your neighbor? If you look at that, it will tell you how you're doing in the first. John says in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God, I am fulfilling the first table of the law, and hates his brother, he is a liar. What's he a liar about? He's not fulfilling the first table of the law. Why? Because he hates his brother. Similarly, or he says, For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God. I'm sorry. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Similarly, if you want to know, Christian, how you're doing in terms of fulfilling the second table of the law, how are you loving your neighbor? Look at the first table of the law. That's the actual barometer. John says, by this we know we love the children of God. By this we shall know we are fulfilling the second table of the law. We're patient with people. We pray with people. We give them our time. He doesn't say any of those things. (laughs) By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. You know you're fulfilling the second table of the law when you're fulfilling the first, and you know you're fulfilling the first when you're fulfilling the second table of the law. They can be distinguished but not separated from one another. Do you honor father and mother? Not if you don't revere God's Sabbaths. Do you revere God's Sabbaths? Not if you don't honor father and mother. How can you? Andrew Bonar a Scottish contemporary of Spurgeon who is highly regarded and praised by Spurgeon, he says of this verse, the principle of both these precepts is regard for and reverence towards God in his ordinances and man in his relation towards us. And the respect shown to parents has an intimate connection with the submission of our mind to authority in any other case such as with the Sabbaths of the Lord. In other words, you want to know if you're honoring God? How do you honor those that God has put over you? (laughs) Right? If you're not honoring them, how can you honor the greater one that is above them? Interestingly, later on in the chapter, there is a mirror of this paragraph from a connected but slightly different perspective, but in both cases, God's Sabbath is mentioned. Look at verse 29. Verse 29. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Why mention the Sabbaths twice? What's the connection? Well, in verse 3, it deals with the duty of children towards parents, honoring father and mother. In verse 29, it deals with the duty of parents towards their children. 
We could extend that out and say one addresses duty to superiors while the other addresses duty to inferiors. Do you want to know if you're keeping the first table of the law? Yes, pastor. Then look at your love. Is it only to superiors or does it also extend to inferiors as well? Because I can tell you the greater test will be whether it, it extends to inferiors, those who can't give you back, those whom you could lord it over. That's the true test of whether you're actually fulfilling the first table of the law. Verse 4, do not turn to idols or make yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. I have no brilliant things to say about this paragraph other than that it contains both the first and the second commandment. And just to note that right out of the gate, we've already had four of the Ten Commandments, not only clustered together, but at the very beginning of the chapter. The purpose of that, again, is so that when Israelites are hearing this, they associate everything in this chapter with the Ten Commandments. It kind of weaves in and out of this chapter. The next time we see explicit commandments from the Ten is not until verses 11 through 12, which have the Eighth, the Ninth, and the Third Commandment in them. And so explicit quotations are woven all throughout implicit allusions showing it's all unified and, and kind of you're filling in the details of the Ten, as it were. Verse 5, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, all six of those verses, really with the two kinds of commandments, one harvest and vineyard commandments towards the end and peace offering commandments towards the one, those all constitute one paragraph, which means there's some connection between them. If we analyze a bit further, we can say that both deal with food and eating in some respect. They deal with the circumstances under which something can be eaten or not eaten. And yet, the first instance is an application from the ceremonial law. Well, the second, we would say, comes from the moral law. Verses 5 through 8 deal with when it was acceptable to eat the peace offering. It could be eaten on the first and the second day, but not on the third. Probably, as I've said before, because by that time, you were just kind of treating it like leftovers. It was no longer associated with a peace offering to God. It was missing the fact of, I'm having communion with God. It was just like food, and so it was not being treated as holy or, or as it had been consecrated for its special purpose. It was really just gluttonous at that point. Verses 9 through 10 deal similarly with eating, at least by implication, since what you keep from your harvest is what you eat, and what you leave behind is what you don't eat. Israelites were not to reap right up to the edge of the field. 
meaning that the outer perimeter generally was to be untouched so that the poor or travelers or passers-by might eat as they walked by. Neither were they to to gather the gleanings. Gleanings refer to what's left in the field, um, either because it's still still in the field or it fell on the ground, after you have gone through it once to harvest. Perhaps you didn't pluck up everything. Perhaps some of it fell to ground. That's the gleanings. And those two were were to be left for passers-by. This, in fact, is what Christ and his disciples were doing in Matthew 12, where it says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. That was not stealing. That was something that you could do in ancient Israel. In verse 10, we see that the same was also true of the vine, not just the wheat field. Some was to be left for the poor or the foreigner. And so, just like with the peace offering, to gather any more, to eat any more, as it were, was merely to be gluttonous and to not use what God gave according to God's purpose. God gave food, but not so that you could be miserly and covetous with it. An Israelite may be very fastidious with regard to the ceremonial law to not misuse the Passover. They may be very clear, it's the second day, I have to eat all of this, or the third day, no, I have to burn the rest of it. And yet, if he harvests his fields right up to the edge, it's as if the Lord is saying, that's just as much a profaning of my name as to profane the peace offering. Likewise, someone might argue, well, I do big picture stuff. I help my neighbor. I don't get too worked up about all that religious stuff and the details. I I don't worry too much about that. I love people. I help them. Placing them here together, God says if you profane his peace offering, your generosity to the poor is just a farce. Furthermore, it's interesting that it is the peace offering that is mentioned. On the one hand, that's not all that interesting because that was the only one that could be eaten by an Israelite. But on the other hand, the peace offering was a thanksgiving offering back to God for his goodness to you. On the one hand, to profane the peace offering, the offering which was supposed to be a sign of gratitude to God, to profane it is the height of ingratitude. Yeah, here, this goes back to you, but I I don't care so much. I, I don't really care about your commandments. And yet, so also is trying to keep an entire harvest that God gave to you all to yourself. That, too, is ingratitude, not just to your neighbor, but to God. It's interesting. Theologians... Uh, moral philosophers, even sociologists. There's, there's all kinds of interesting things you can find on this. They have all noted the connection between gratitude and thanksgiving towards God on the one hand and generosity on the other. Gratitude and generosity. They are twin virtues. Gratitude gives birth to generosity, ingratitude to miserliness. Gratitude is an acknowledgement that you have freely and liberally received from God, and therefore, with the same mind, you freely and liberally give to others. But to lack in generosity towards your neighbor, that actually says more about your fulfillment of duty to God than it does to your neighbor. Because your lack of generosity comes from a lack of gratitude to God, 
Again, showing the interrelation between the first and second table and also the importance of keeping both ceremonial and moral law as well. Verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Here again, laws from different tables. Verses 11 quotes the 8th and the ninth commandment in the second table, while verse 12 deals with the third commandment from the first. The connection between the two is that in both cases, an Israelite is dealing falsely. Notice the language of falsely. In the first case, they are dealing falsely with their neighbor, and yet, in the second, they are dealing falsely with God's name, such that by one and the same law, both tables of the law are actually broken. Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Here the unifying theme, I would say, of this paragraph is that first word, to oppress, to oppress. We see the idea all throughout of oppressing or taking advantage of or harming those who cannot protect themselves. The poor day laborer who only makes enough for each day, it would be easy to take advantage of him. What's he going to do? I have his wages. Tell him to go somewhere else. He can hire a lawyer with the wages that I have, right? No, you laugh about it, because what's he going to do? The poor deaf person can't even hear the curse with which they are cursed. The blind person can't see who put the block in front of them that they might get justice. In all of these cases, it is oppressing someone who is weaker than you, who can't, who can't seek justice, and it's oppression. However, the paragraph ends with the phrase, they shall fear God. They shall fear God. Not only is Israel to avoid all these things, but by contrast, they shall fear God. Ultimately, at the heart of oppression, at the heart of all these sins here, is a lack of the fear of God. In Malachi 3.5, God describes those who swear falsely, who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, who thrust aside the sojourner as those who do not fear me. <laughs> they have no fear of God. Why? Because if they did, they would remember his commandment in Exodus 22. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows, and your children shall become fatherless. We might say those are social justice, sins of social justice here. They're actually violations of the first table of the law just as much. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. 
This paragraph begins and ends with calls for acting justly in an actual courtroom setting. What's very interesting, though, is that sandwich in the middle is just a general prohibition against slandering or what we might just call gossiping. In fact, I like what the King James says, you shall not go about as a talebearer amongst your people. On the one hand, we see laws of great magnitude. To lie in court, we have a special name for that. That's perjury. That's a crime. It's also, we see, when someone's life is on the line, as intimated by the words, you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. The implication is by giving false witness, you are condemning them to death. These are big-time lies. And sandwiched in between is the gossip. (laughs) The person who goes about not in a public courtroom, but privately. Not harming someone's life, but their reputation. Perhaps the meaning then is that just according to our Lord, to look at a woman with lustful intent is to commit adultery with her in the heart, so also to slander someone in private is to condemn them and not care about their life like the person who slanders in a courtroom. Very, very vast differences between the two. One is is by far more condemnable, right? To actually perjure and send someone to death, that's, that's a greater sin. But they're both of the same stock. It's the same poison, just different degrees. God says that's how he views it. Verse 17, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. With these verses, we are not only quite literally dealing with the heart of the matter, such as not hating in the heart, not bearing a grudge in the heart, but there is a crescendo leading up to the royal law at verse 18. In fact, I I was going to put this in the order of service, but I didn't have time. It uses four different kinds of uh, cognate, uh, what's it called, synonyms? Synonyms for the word neighbor. And uh, in this one, in the last paragraph, it has four different terms for neighbor, sons of your people, your brother, neighbor, uh, and then another term that's very interchangeable with neighbor. But it starts back four paragraphs before where it just has one term, the next paragraph has another, the next one has three of them, and then the fourth one has all four, such that there's kind of this crescendo of talking about brotherly love. This is the royal law. This is the heart of the passage. This is the heart of the law. And this is the heart and height of true godliness. Paul says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is why he warns the Corinthians, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. That's not sentimentalism. That's the heart of the law. 
If you do all those things but have not love, you're a lawbreaker. You've not kept it. Note, we are not only to love our neighbor, which everyone would say they do in some sense. It's, it's, it's amazing to see some people with the most blinded, hardened consciences, how they talk about, I'm generally a nice guy, right? I, I generally love other people, right? Everyone says that when we go evangelizing. Yeah, I, I, I love people, right? The law doesn't let you get off that easy. You shall not only love your neighbor, but love them as yourself. Children, do you want to fulfill the second commandment, the great commandment to love your neighbor? Love your siblings as yourself. That's what this is calling you to do. Just as you like when people are nice to you, you like when people are thoughtful for you, you like when people are patient and you forgive, you like all those things, right? It's nice to receive them. Guess what? The law says to truly fulfill the law, that's exactly how you treat others. Christ explained it with great plainness. It almost, it almost, this is, how many times have these exact words come out of the mouths of pagans and they don't know, they're actually quoting Jesus. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That's all it means. That's why Christ says, for this is the law and the prophets. He's giving an explanation of Leviticus 19.18. This is what it means to truly love, brothers and sisters, as yourselves. That's the height of it. That's the staggering weight of it. Moving on a bit more quickly, verse 19, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your fields with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. What I love about this verse is the shocking contrast uh, between this and the weightiness of the last verse. Jesus talks about the weightier matters of the law. And there's, there's a way to talk about that. That's, that would be contradicting Christ, right? Some things are indeed weightier. And we could say with verse 18, we were just touching upon the weightiest matters. And yet right after it, where do we go? Some of the simplest things we might say, things that are to the world laughable. Not sowing your fields with two kinds of seed. Not wearing a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Gordon Wenham notes that to the modern reader, and oftentimes we hear this from unbelievers, this section proceeds from the sublime. Loving neighbor as yourself to the ridiculous. But as he says, in Israel, both were aspects of, of holiness. Indeed, those sowing a field with the different types of seeds, wearing garments of mixed fabrics, may not be ranked amongst the weightiest matters of the law. That does not mean they have no weight. They have weight since they come from God. They too were given, as is seen by the fact that they proceed right after verse 18, and I think that that's intentional. I think that's the point. After all, Although Christ criticized the Pharisees for not keeping the weightier matters of the law, he also warned whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments 
and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. The least in the kingdom of heaven. Very powerful language. Or as James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. An Israelite might have so much love. They might be loved far and wide for their great generosity, their great humility, loving others as they themselves would want to be loved. And yet if they don't pay attention to this, all of that becomes law-breaking instead of law-keeping. The worldly person hears that, becomes highly offended. You're telling me, the Mother Teresas of the world, you're telling me the Gandhis of the world, which actually if you know more about them, you'd be like, well, I don't know about that, right? You're telling me the people who live a life of rich generosity and serving others And yet, because they just don't really care whether their shirt is half cotton or half polyester in Israel, that person is going to hell for law-breaking. Yeah, that's what the law of God says. If they didn't bother about whether their shirt was half cotton, half polyester, when they knew that the God of the universe gave it, the great I Am, then they don't fear or love God as they ought to. If they don't love or fear God as they ought to, then they don't love their brothers. Again, as John says, by this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. I had a friend a long time ago. He hated God. He was such a snarky atheist. (laughs) I told him, I uh, I said, can I pray for you? He said, you can pray for me, Ryan. But just note, I can beat your faith out of you if you want, if I wanted to. And he said, Okay, I'm going to close my eyes and pray. (laughs) I prayed for him. But he told me a story. This was like, you know, every atheist has a story of like, I was so wounded by what this religious person did, and that's how I justify my rebellion against God. And he said, I went to church once. It was a church I was going to. And the minister told me, I could not actually love my family because I don't love God. Highly offended. I know he loved his family a lot. He had a good relationship with his parents. He didn't love them as he ought to have because he hated their maker. How could you hate the thing that, that made them and love the product? You can't as you truly ought to. And he was so offended by this and the law does not care. You have great love, but you reject the tiniest of God's commandments. Your love is hatred, undone. Not love as it ought to be. Continuing on very quickly now, or else we're never going to finish. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man, and yet not ransom or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. It shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. And he, ha- and he shall be forgiven for the sin. This passage is clarifying that though the death penalty was normally the punishment for fornication, yet that was not the case when the woman was a slave, probably for her, because she's not free. On the one hand, she might have felt pressure to go along with it because this is her master or something. And also because in the ancient world, she did not have as much value as, as a free woman. She just didn't. 
And so there was uh, a distinction. It says a distinction is to be made. Most likely, actually, that passage means there shall be compensation, right? So it's not saying they shall go scot-free. If a man did that, that is still fornication. You're not going to be put to death, but you still have to give compensation, probably to the man that she is assigned to. Because although she's not been redeemed yet, he's probably paid the bride price, and he must receive compensation. And then there is compensation to the Lord in the guilt offering, okay? Verse 23. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, you shall, not regard, or you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it must not be eaten, and in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. Really what this has to do uh, with the fact is that the first fruits or the firstborn belong to God. If you planted a new tree, the first fruits should go to God. However, the fruits are really not going to be that good in the first or the second or the third year. Really, the fourth year is when the tree kinds of comes to its own, and then it's something worth actually giving God, right? First, it goes to him, then the fifth year, you can eat of it. But it gets back to the fact that everything belongs to God. Verse 26, <clears throat> you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not pray, profane your daughter by making her a prostitute lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reference my, reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums and necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Here I would say in these three paragraphs, most of the commandments have to do with avoiding pagan practices of worship or ancestor worship. This may also be why the prohibition against a man making his daughter a prostitute is here. Temple prostitution was a thing in the ancient world, and perhaps it's here because it's, um, it's not only forbidding prostitution, prostituting your child in general, but in the, in the sense of perhaps someone would say, well, you know, it's, it's given for a good cause, right? They're becoming a temple prostitute. Um, the term actually for a temple prostitute is something along the lines of like, a holy or a consecrated one. And that's how they were seen in the ancient world and other parts. And so perhaps a man might justify his sin. Well, I'm not just prostituting her. I'm putting her into holy service to God somehow, right? Here we'll just note that in addition... Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. I have to keep going here. Sorry. Uh, finally, verse 32. You, should stand up before the, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. If oppressing the weak and the needy is a lack of fear of God, so also is not honoring the aged, right? On the one hand, the fear of God makes you treat your inferiors good, but also treats your superiors good as well. Verse 33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just him. Hin, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and my rules and do them. I am the Lord your God. The only thing to note in the last one is that God extends out the call to love neighbor even to the sojourner and the foreigner in the land. You are also to love them as yourself. Well, that was quick. It's like drinking water from a fire hose. But God is telling Israel, this is what it means for you to be holy as I am holy. We may say in summary To keep the law, this is what it means. To fulfill both tables of the law, falling short in neither our duty to God nor man. You can't fall short in either because if you do, you undo the other one. It means keeping moral as well as positive elements of the law. Another term for positive is ceremonial. We don't speak of ourselves having the ceremonial law because that term typically refers to kind of the, the shadow and the typological elements of the Old Testament law. But we do still have symbolism and positive elements, as you can see in the sacraments here, right? Keeping the law means keeping both. Not just moral, but also positive elements of the law as well. Keeping the law means we fall short neither in public duties nor in private duties. It means we fall short neither in outward actions nor in innermost thoughts. It means we fall short neither with the huge, the weighty, the royal commandments, nor in the very least of them. It means we deal justly with both inferiors and superiors, the young and the aged, the rich and the poor, the native and the foreigner. It means to not merely love, but to love as yourself. That is what it means to be holy as God is holy, Christian. It's exceedingly colossal in its magnitude as it is minute and precise in its detail. And to skip out on one, either its breadth or its detail, means you've undone the whole thing. It's interesting, on the one hand, I like what this shows us here, I like the term precision. The law demands a precision, a perfect precision actually to carrying it. You may not have known this, but while the Reformed, the very zealous ones in England and Scotland were called the Puritans, The Puritan equivalent of of a Puritan in the Netherlands, they were called precisionists or precisians. That's what they were called. Partly uh, as a pejorative, but they also owned it and said, yeah, that actually describes our position. One of my favorite Dutch theologians, Gispertus Fuschus, he actually wrote an essay titled Concerning Precision concerning precision, precisely to teach his seminary students that that's actually what God demands. He says, 
in matters of ethics or religious practice, precision means that which is exact or as it should be. Its object is the practice of piety or obedience according to all the parts, all the actions, all the degrees and circumstances that God's word requires. It is necessary that one have a regard for the whole and all its individual parts, even small parts and minutia, if one could speak that way. It has regard for the least thought, the least word, gesture, even the smallest case of conscience and the consequences and circumstances of deeds, and so in everything conform exactly as possible to this most perfect norm, leaving neither one jot of good nor admitting or committing any form of evil. As Christ says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And as I was reading this, God convicted me of sin. (laughs) I was reading this from a a picture of a copy of a book I had made from a library, which I thought you could do, but then I found out it was copyright law. This is public right now. And I was like, I'm going to delete those. And then I forgot. And I was like, oh, it's in that book. I did it. And I was like, the least case of conscience? Like, all right, I'm going to purchase this book. I I need to actually purchase the book. (laughs) But that's what he says the law actually requires. It does. Not just the big things, but in small things. He goes on to respond to criticisms of precisionism, as he calls it. He says, we are called by our opponents precisionist, sabbatarian, zealot, hypocrite, long-nosed, killjoy, double reformer, and church of the saints. He goes on to answer objections. Some of you may be feeling these objections to some degree, but listen to what he says. Objection one, if everything must be done with such care and exactness, then conscience will always hesitate in doubt and never be tranquil, right? If I am to to handle matters of conscience with massive things, with the same degree of care as I I handle small cases of conscience, and by small case of conscience, I mean you're, you're fighting in your conscience, should I do this or is this sin? The objection is if I treat them both the same, all things alike, I'll never have peace in my heart. He says, those who practice religion must distinguish between the precision that is mere scrupulosity and superstition and that which is required by God's word. If anyone means the first, no one approves of that except the pharisaical, right? Yeah, the Pharisees were being scrupulous for the sake of superstition and their own traditions. If anyone means the second, the objection has no foundation. He's just criticizing the word of God. Objection two. Precisionism destroys Christian freedom and places shackles on the conscience. This cannot be done by the precision required in the Word of God. What the precisionists require is impossible. We reply that it is our duty and that is enough. Now, I'm not trying to necessarily promote some practice of, promote, of, of precisionism, but I share that with you because what I think they're getting right is the fact that the law demands precision in its obedience. Pastor, we're no longer under the law. Yeah, we're no longer under it as a covenant of works, 
But did you know that our confession says our obligation after Christ is greater to obey the law of God than before? We have a greater obligation to fulfill all its parts. We have the Spirit of God within us. We have a new heart. We have an enlightened mind. It's an even greater sin when we don't. I hope you feel some degree of exasperation. (laughs) I hope any resting in your law-keeping has been done away with today. And if not, you're not seeing the law as you ought to. Remember the purpose of this. We saw this when we looked at the Heidelberg Catechism. Interestingly, Gisbertus Fuchs, when he writes that concerning precision, he's expounding question 115 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which we read at the beginning, which is why we read it. Remember the question. Why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached since no man in this life can keep them? First, that all of our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness of Christ. Children, children, if you do not know Christ yet, hear me, listen to me. If you commit the smallest sin, you have committed all the sins. If you have committed the slightest hatred in your heart, you have committed murder just in a smaller degree. If you have a lack of generosity to your siblings, which I'm sure you do every single day, if we had your parents come up here and tell us, they would tell us all kinds of things. That's a lack of gratitude towards God. Children, you cannot get to heaven by your law keeping. You know why? You don't have any. You have never kept one commandment of God, not one as it ought to be kept, none. You might think, but I obey my parents, not as you should. Not for the glory of God, not according to God's word. Guess what? You have nothing but sin and no righteousness. Your only hope, the only hope you can have, the only place your soul can rest is not in your obedience, but in Jesus Christ. He will forgive your sins and give you a righteousness of his perfect law-keeping. Christian, Rest more and more in Christ on the one hand. If you have a tendency to look at your law-keeping and find a nice, comfortable chair that you can rest in and comfort your conscience with, don't. A chair doesn't exist. Your only hope is in Jesus Christ and His remission and His righteousness. And yet, this is still your duty Though you have the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ, that does not mean you are any less but all the more obligated to press on into holiness. If you find yourself exasperated at that call, fall on your knees and your heart before the Holy Spirit and ask for His enabling. He will help you to do so. That is the call of what it means to be holy as our God is holy causes us to run to Christ, and then after running to Christ, to run to the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, as the psalmist says, open my eyes that I might see wondrous things in your law. 
Your word, your word has no junk drawers in it, God. It's all treasures. It's all gold. It's all gems and beauty. And we thank you for that. Oh, Father, give us a greater sight of your holiness and your law that we might have a greater sight of our sin, that we might run to Christ, that we might live in gratitude and growing more and more conformable to the law by the enabling of the Spirit. In Christ's name.